The following message is part of the preaching ministry of Berlin Baptist Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. If you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Hosea, chapter 10, we'll continue on our, our study through this Old Testament prophecy. And as, as you're turning to Hosea 10, I want you to think about, in particular, uh, this always boggles my mind. I don't know why I'm surprised when these things happen. But we spoke, uh, and, and I don't know if Trish is in. Trish is probably back there, but you can thank Trish Rawls for suggesting that uh, we get together and have you all here today, so thank you for that. And uh, we talked about uh, the berries being here today. We did not discuss what songs would be sung, uh, but the song they just sang, I believe he's coming back, just like he said. I believe a trumpet's going to sound so loud that one day it's going to wake the dead, right? He'll split the eastern sky. We think about that, and we think about how wonderful that will be. We think about how... Um, maybe even anxious we are for that to happen. But here's the thing. Are we really ready for that to happen? Now, individually, we may be able to say, absolutely, I'm, I've been ready, and I can't wait. Uh, it'd be, be fine if it was today. Uh, however, there are many people in the world, and let's just go ahead and make it more personal, there are many people in our community maybe some in our families who are not prepared for that to happen. And, and the more, you know, I, I've thought about this, the more we push on through this prophecy, the more we see the different ways that God tells His people about their sin and the consequences of their sins, and the more He uh, relays to them through these prophets the consequences and the judgment and punishment that is coming their way unless they repent and turn to Him and follow Him, uh, it, it helps me to understand we're not alone. They weren't prepared to meet with the Lord. And so I, I pray that as we're going through this, we won't just get lost in saying, well, that was something that happened to God's people all those years ago. We're talking about, you know, 750 B.C. This is a long, this is almost 3,000 years ago. This, how does this apply to me? Well, today, and I hope that we've seen that as we've moved through this book, all of this applies to us Amen. right now, right where we are. And it applies to those around us as well. Over and over again in the Old Testament, Israel is portrayed as God's choice vine or choice vineyard, according to James Boyce. That's his, his conclusion over this. Let me just share with you a couple of passages in the Old Testament besides the one we're in today. In Isaiah chapter 5, here's what we find. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it. 
and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Now that started out great. But then if you heard what Isaiah was saying to God's people, God did all this preparation and called his people and set them up to succeed and then they didn't. He says he expected them to yield these wonderful grapes and they yielded worthless fruit. How about in Jeremiah chapter 2? Yet I planted you a choice vine, a completely faithful seed. How then have you turned yourself before me into the degenerate shoots of a foreign vine? That sounds terrible. That's Isaiah and then Jeremiah. And how about Psalm 80? Psalm 80. You removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and you planted it. You cleared the ground before it and it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shadow and the cedars of God with its bows. And so here is God doing all these things for His people. Now, who are His people? Now, we're not, we're not replacing Israel. Just understand that. But we're, we're still His people. right? If we follow Jesus, we're His people. So God's done all these things for us. What kind of fruit are we bearing? Right? That, that's the picture of this prophecy. The extraordinary thing about the use of this image in the Old Testament is that it always brought forward uh, as a symbol of Israel's degeneration rather than its fruitfulness. And it's the same in Hosea. In chapter 10, Israel is called a spreading or luxuriant vine. We'll see that in the first verse. But her fruit is not what God desires. It's the fruit of idolatrous religion. Fruit just for herself. So when we think, okay, I don't see how this applies to me today, well, think again, because this applies directly to every believer. What kind of fruit are we bearing for the kingdom of God? Are we really following Jesus? Are we really uh, doing the things that He's called us to do? Or are, are we, have, we, have we left the reservation? Have we kind of veered off on our own path? Okay, that, that's kind of the overarching theme here. So let me read these 15 verses here, and then we'll talk just about a couple of things that God shows us in these verses that I believe uh, are very specifically applicable to us today. Hosea chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, here's what the Bible says. Israel is a luxuriant vine. He produces fruit for himself. The more his fruit, the more altars he made. The richer his land, the better he made the sacred pillars. Their heart is faithless. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their sacred pillars. Surely now they will say, we have no king, for we do not revere the Lord. As for the king, what can he do for us? They speak mere words. With worthless oaths they make covenants. And judgment sprouts like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria will fear for the calf of Beth-Avon. Indeed, its people will mourn for it, and its idolatrous priests will cry out over it, over its glory, since it has departed from it. 
The thing itself will be carried to Assyria as tribute to King Jerob. Ephraim will be seized with shame, and Israel will be ashamed of its own counsel. Samaria will be cut off with her king like a stick on the surface of the water. Also the high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, will be destroyed. Thorn and thistle will grow on their altars. Then they will say to the mountains, Cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. From the days of Gibeah you've sinned, O Israel. There they stand. Will not the battle against the sons of iniquity overtake them in Gibeah? When it is my desire, I will chastise them, and the peoples will be gathered against them when they are bound for their double guilt. Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves to thresh, but I will come over her fair neck with a yoke. I will harness Ephraim. Judah will plow. Jacob will harrow for himself. Sow with a view to righteousness. Reap in accordance with kindness. Break up your fallow ground, for it's time to seek the Lord until He comes to rain righteousness on you. But you've plowed wickedness. You've reaped injustice. You've eaten the fruit of lies because you've trusted in your way, in your numerous warriors. Therefore a tumult will arise among your people and all your fortresses will be destroyed as Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle when mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Thus it will be done to you at Bethel because of your great wickedness. At dawn, the king of Israel will be completely cut off. Father, in Jesus' name, please speak to our hearts clearly today so we can understand what you're saying and then we can be obedient to what you're telling us to do. For the glory of Jesus we pray. Amen. This passage, as has been the last several chapters, it seems, in this prophecy, uh, the similar refrain, but maybe couched in different terms, but the same message over and over and over. Sin has consequences. Our actions have consequences. We can't just continue to do whatever we want to do and disregard the Lord and think that nothing's going to happen. That doesn't, that doesn't make good sense. I mean, think of it in, in worldly terms. Let's say, uh, well, I know, you know, these speed limit signs, I know they're posted everywhere. You can't go down a road without seeing a speed limit sign. And so that's uh, uh, the fruit of a study, apparently, of uh, what is a safe speed for that road, given the, the whether it's two-lane, four-lane, or whatever it is, given the number of uh, residences or businesses or given you know, all the streets that, that connect to it, all these different factors that they figure to figure out what is the safe speed for this road. And so it's not just a suggestion, right? Sometimes, well, I'll speak for myself, I take it as a suggestion and I'll look at the speed on that sign, I'm like, oh, come on. I mean, good grief, that's way too slow for this road. Uh, and then I operate, you know, like I know better than all the studies of the highway department, and so I just go however fast I think I need to go. Well, that's not right, because it's not a suggestion. And so if I continue to behave that way, and I continue to just disregard the, the big white sign with black numbers, as clear as day, speed limit, right? It's not like I can plead ignorance. I mean, I see them everywhere. I just choose to ignore them a lot of times. And so... What's going to happen if I keep doing that? Can I expect, well, I, why are you pulling me over? I thought 85 was perfectly appropriate for this road. And so 
Can I be surprised or should I be offended if I get pulled over when I'm clearly surpassing the posted speed limit? If I continue to do that, should I, do I have any grounds to be upset at what's happening? Of course not. It's not like I wasn't warned. It's clearly posted. I've been given all the information I need. You know the only 100% foolproof way not to get a speeding ticket? Go to speed limit. Not rocket science, right? Go to speed limit. So, so guess what? Here's a, a book full of, just to carry on the illustration, traffic laws, guidance, all the information we need to uh, what Peter would write to us. Uh, we've been granted everything pertaining to life and godliness by Jesus Christ. He called us by his own glory and excellence. And so we have everything we need to live a godly life. So do we, do we really have any grounds to be shocked if we don't follow God's word and things go, you know, go offline and we have problems? Should we be shocked? No, I don't think so. So the sins of the people continually, they come into view here over and over and over in this prophecy and it's all about unfaithfulness and so God's people are being unfaithful. So the first ten verses of this chapter, verses 1 through 10, three uh, particular ways that God's people have not followed His word and His direction, the sins of the people. So within this first section, there's three little subpoints. So here they are. The first one is unfaithfulness instead of love. Unfaithfulness instead of love. Hosea's marriage comes back into view here. Remember from the very beginning of this prophecy? He was told to go marry a wife of unfaithfulness and have children of unfaithfulness. So this, this marriage illustration is coming back into view. Israel is pretending to worship God, but they're really committing spiritual adultery because they're going after all these idols. All right, so what's the application for us? Because each one of these three things here has a particular application for us. Here it is. God's people following idols, but they're pretending to worship God. Okay? So in our day, millions of so-called Christians are doing the same thing. They, they would never outright deny the existence of God, and maybe they even go to church regularly. But they're actually often in church only because of what people might think of them if they don't go, or maybe they're just trying to get more business contacts. You know, that happens. Uh, I, I actually know of a, an instance years ago when, when that very thing happened. This family went and joined a, a larger church in the Columbia area because they were starting a new business and they knew there were so many more people there they have more opportunity to make some contacts and, and weren't bashful about it. So unfaithfulness instead of love. The second sin that's identified here, verses uh, 3 to 7, is falsehood instead of truth. Falsehood instead of truth. Israel is pretending to speak truthfully and as God's people, they should have been trustworthy, but they were attempting to cheat other people for their own private gain. So they were being uh, dishonest. So what's the application for us? God is a God of truth, right? 
His Spirit is the Spirit of truth. His Word is the Word of truth. So to operate by any other standard while saying you're a follower of, of Jesus is completely hypocritical. So Christians don't have the luxury of being dishonest if we want to follow what Jesus says. right? We can do whatever we want, but remember, actions have consequences. So you can be dishonest if you want to, and, and let that be your, your way of operation, but you just can't say that you're following Jesus because Jesus is the truth, right? Number three, evil instead of righteousness. This is verses 8 through 10. So you've got unfaithfulness instead of love, falsehood instead of truth, now evil instead of righteousness. Israel is pretending to be the epitome of goodness, as God's chosen people. And their altars, though, their altars, God called their altars high places of wickedness. So he saw right through it, as he always does. And then in verse 9, there's a reference to uh, a place called Gibeah. You see that in verse 9. It's representative of their wickedness, because what happened there? So what's our application? Evil instead of righteousness. Well, evil that's done in secret doesn't cease to be evil just because nobody knows about it, right? You can do something wrong and think you got away with it because nobody knows about it. Does that mean God doesn't know about it? No, He knows everything. He sees everything. So we can sit there and sneak around and think, well, nobody caught me. I mean, really? Like God just took a day off? He's on break, so He wasn't paying attention to what you were doing right that, at that moment. Now, God sees everything. So... Even evil done in secret is still evil. God sees it all. So pretending to be righteous after behaving that way is the height of ignorance and insecurity. So here's, here's a good example. What if we choose to disguise gossip by saying, well, let me share this prayer request with you because they, these, these folks need prayer. Let me tell you all about it. Well, regardless of how we try to dress it up, God knows what's in our hearts. And so that ought to cause us to rethink what we're saying or doing. Right? Because it doesn't matter if, you, if, we, if we can come up with a good story and try to make ourselves feel better about what we're doing or saying. That doesn't mean that God's fooled. He, he's not fooled by any of this. If we practice unfaithfulness instead of love or falsehood instead of truth or evil instead of righteousness, God is never fooled. He sees right through it all. He sees our hearts. So that's the sins of the people. Number two in the grand scheme here is the response of God. So we had the sin of the people and those three instances and then the response of God and here's what God says from verse 11 to verse 15. First thing He says is, My people are supposed to live differently. And we've said this before in other contexts, but have you ever thought about the degree to which we blend in with the world? Have you ever just thought about that, maybe examined that a little bit? How well do I blend in with the rest of the world. In other words, uh, 
how different am I from friends or coworkers or schoolmates or whomever if I know, if I, well, I can't know for sure, but if I suspect maybe somebody that I know doesn't know Jesus, doesn't follow Jesus, and their values are different than mine, their beliefs, I suspect, are different than mine. I mean, I'm not a judge, I'm a witness. So I, I, it's not my determination to make. But you can inspect the fruit, right? So if that's my suspicion, well, this person I work with or this person I know, they, their beliefs, values, and, and everything, that's different than me. So then that, that begs the question. If, that, if that's true, if I think that's true, how much does my life look like their life? Isn't that a fair question? If I claim to follow Jesus and these are my values and these are my beliefs and I hold to, to God's Word as my guide in life and then I compare that with somebody who doesn't have those things, if, if my life looks a lot like their life, don't you think that's wrong? Are y'all all right? Is everybody okay? Are you awake out there? Doesn't that seem wrong to you? Because if my life is supposed to be patterned after Jesus and I'm supposed to be reading and studying and meditating on His Word and praying to Him and praying for strength uh, and, and ability to do what He says and be obedient to His Word and glorify Him with everything I have, if that's what my goal is and then I don't look any different than Joe over here, whoever doesn't follow Jesus at all, doesn't go to church, doesn't have a Bible, doesn't care anything about God, that's wrong. It's wrong if I'm going to claim the name of Jesus, but my life looks no different than the rest of the world. And see, Jesus says in, in, this, in this passage, in verse 11, verse 12, my people must live differently. The test of righteousness. Are we making any progress here? The test of love. How do we treat each other? The test of truth. The, the theological test. Do we believe the gospel of Christ? Let me just, just point you to a couple of passages here that answer those questions. And if you're, if you're taking notes, you can jot down 1 John chapter 2. Because there's several paragraphs in 1 John chapter 2 that deal with these issues. The first one about the test of righteousness. Are we making progress? 1 John chapter 2 verses 3 to 6. By this we know we've come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. The one who says, I've come to know Him and does not keep His commandments, is a liar. The truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word, in Him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we're in Him. The one who says He abides in Him ought Himself to walk in the same manner as He walked. So are we making progress in righteousness? How about the test of love? How do we treat each other? 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 to 11. Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you've heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you've heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you which is true in Him and in you because the darkness is passing away. The true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there's no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Do we love each other? 
Do we love those around us? Do we show love to people who we know don't believe like we do? Because we hope and pray that we'll love them and they'll see, why why you care this much about me? Because Jesus loves me and He loves you and I'm trying to show you that. The test of love. How about the test of truth? Do we believe the gospel? 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. Children, it's the last hour. And just as you heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. And from this we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us. Listen to this. This, is, oh, this verse is powerful. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so it would be shown that they all are not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know, I've not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lies of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? And this is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. So do we believe that Jesus is who He says He is? Do we believe that Jesus did what the Bible says He did? Do we, and by the way, do you know our salvation hinges on what we believe about Jesus, what we have done with Jesus? And, and, and we, we've talked about this. Uh, we, Darlene and I had a great conversation yesterday about this. Belief is not just checking a box and saying, yeah, I agree with that. Belief demonstrates itself in obedience. So if you really believe something, it will show in your conduct that you truly believe. In John chapter 3 and verse 36, uh, Jesus said, uh, whoever has the Son has life, but whoever does not obey the Son does not have life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. So you know what that means? He just equated belief with obedience. If you believe in the, in the Son, you have life. But if you don't obey the Son, you don't have life. He's using those words interchangeably. That's John 3.36. And that, by the way, that's right after Jesus got through telling Nicodemus that God loved the world like this. He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life, right? So what does that mean? Whoever. But what does whoever got to do? Believe. Obey. It's the same thing. Obey Jesus. Follow Jesus. Surrender to Jesus. How is this relevant to us? If we are drawn into a spiritual union with Jesus Christ because of His grace and our faith in Him, then we have to, by the fact that we are joined to Jesus, we absolutely have to be changed. This is so easy to see, but it's so difficult to do. If we belong to Jesus and He is leading us and we're following, our lives will be different. They, they have to be. They have to be different. 
James Boyce said, if we have a divided heart at these points, we're either saved but terribly far from God, or else we've never tasted the life of the Lord Jesus in the first place, regardless of what we say. What's that old saying? The proof's in the pudding? Right? Um, actions speak louder than words? Fill in your cliche, but that's the truth. So, so God says, my people must live differently. He also says this, sin will be punished. The last three verses of the chapter. You've plowed wickedness. You've reaped injustice. You've eaten the fruit of lies. And so this tumult, this great uprising is going to come up among your people. All your fortresses are going to be destroyed, the Bible says. Verse 14. And then, and then look at this in verse 15. And I, I think I've said this the last two or maybe three weeks. God's judgment is not arbitrary. It's not random. And it's not meaningless. God does not just punish you just because He gets His kicks off of punishing you. That's not what happens. You will be punished. Look what, what the Bible says, verse 15. You will be punished because of your great wickedness. There's a reason. There's a reason. It's not random. And it's not for no reason. This will be done to you at Bethel because of your great wickedness. So, so what do we take from all this? How are we supposed to process all that God has told his people here in Hosea 10, and then we're supposed to apply, apply that all to us. How, how, can we, how can we live as we should live? That, that's really the question. How can we live as we should? <clears throat> let, me, let me just uh, add one more scripture here from the Gospel of John. Chapter 15. This is, this is a familiar passage, most likely. L listen to, to what Jesus says in John 15. I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes it away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so it will bear more fruit. You are already clean because the word which I've spoken to you abide in me and I in you. As the branch can't bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. See, Jesus gives us a command in verse 5 there that we're to remain in Him. He means we're to live such lives that He would continue to abide in us. Leon Morris said that no branch bears fruit in isolation. It must have a vital connection with the vine. So to abide in Christ is the necessary requirement of fruitfulness for the Christian. Abide in Christ. 
Then James Boyce says that it's union with Christ and only union with Christ that gives us power to live a godly and fruitful life in this world. Remember, Jesus promises fruit in due time if we truly abide in Him. Ultimately, God is the one responsible for the vineyard and He has determined that His vineyard will be fruitful. So you know what that means? The question before me, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not even going to talk about all of, all of you. I'm talking about, start with me. The question before me today is whether or not I am truly abiding in Christ. Where am I spending my time? What does my lifestyle reveal to me about how well I'm abiding in Christ? And these are potentially very uncomfortable questions. Because what it causes me to do is I have to examine my life and I have to be honest with myself because if I'm not honest, then what's the point? I mean, what am I going to do? Just tell a, tell a lie to myself about my own life? That, that doesn't help anybody. But I have to ask those questions. I have to examine my lifestyle, my time. What, am I really in, abiding in Christ? And no matter how uncomfortable that is, the answers to those questions are going to tell me how I'm doing. And maybe this would be easier. If somebody else were to inspect the fruit of my life, what would they find? Somebody that is going to tell me the truth whether I like it or not. If they were to examine the fruit of my life, what, what are they going to find? Are they going to find the fruit of the Spirit or are they going to find the deeds of the flesh as Galatians 5 tells us? Because I'll tell you this, between the fruit of the Spirit and the deeds of the flesh, only one of those points to Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. For more information on Berlin Baptist Church, we invite you to explore our website at www.berlinchurchsc.org. 